This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The White House announced tariffs on upwards of $60 billion on products coming from China to the U.S. They brought these forward due to, as they say, intellectual property theft coming from the Asian nation. And in response, Beijing announced tariffs of around $3 billion worth of products coming from the U.S. The announcement by President Trump came after an investigation by U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer into potentially unfair trade practices with the U.S. He will publish a list of targeted products in the next two weeks with a 30-day public comment period following. To discuss this story, we are joined here in studio by Jacques DeLeo, professor of law and professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also director of the Center for East Asian Studies. And also with us in studio, Marshall Meyer, emeritus professor of management here at the Wharton School. And joining us on the phone, Matt Gold, who's an adjunct professor of law at Fordham University and a former deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for North America. Jacques, Marshall, as always, great to have you both here. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Good to be here, Don. Thank you. Matt, great to have you with us today. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, let's start with the reaction uh, to all of this. Marshall, uh, in seeing this play out in the last 24 hours, what's your reaction, I guess, to both sides? Um, my, my personal reaction is, ouch, this hurts. Um, uh, kind of more considered reaction uh, is that uh, not surprising that we're doing something a little concerned uh, that we're using a blunt instrument rather than, shall we say, a fine scalpel. Uh, the tariffs, uh, you know, are directed at, at least originally, smokestack industries where China is not going to push forward a lot. In fact, they're shutting down capacity. Right. Underlying problems, I'm not sure they're addressed. Jacques? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are genuine concerns here. It's it's not as if the Trump administration is pointing at things that we haven't been hearing about for a long time and quite rightly as, as problems. Intellectual property is obviously the sector in which the U.S. has the greatest comparative advantage. And there's been a lot of problems with Chinese theft and uh, weak protection and kind of uh, hard bargaining uh, to coercive terms for, for tech transfers. So this is all real stuff. But I think there is a fairly low level of trust in the Trump administration in being able to handle this either well or effectively. Matt, what's been your reaction? Oh, no question. China has heinously stolen U.S. intellectual property rights and violated other um, trade obligations to the United States. There's no dispute about that. The question is, how do you manage it when you look at the facts uh, on the ground and the realities uh, that we face in the global economy and global security uh, in international diplomacy with China, um, we're not free to react to this in an impulsive way. We're not free to react to this um, in a way that um, is, uh, you know, quick and will bring quick results. Those options really don't exist if you want to be effective. Um, and, you know, we have somebody in the White House who, who views these things on a very immature level um, and is going about it in a way that other presidents have chosen not to for very good reason. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Matt, because uh, of when you look at the sheer numbers, uh, I think a lot of people are wondering, OK, you have potentially looking at 60 uh, billion dollars in, in tariffs from the U.S. towards China and $3 billion from China towards the U.S. So I guess the, the, the explanation of how the difference plays in there, can you take us into that for a bit? 
Yeah, I can, but I, I'd like to focus in on, on the one key element nobody's talking about, which is central to all of this, and that is there are two ways for the United States to retaliate against uh, another country for violating trade treaty obligations to the United States. One is legal, one is not. Um, the criteria are about the same. The magnitude of the retaliation is about the same. The difference is if you do it legally, you've got to go to the World Trade Organization. You've got to litigate. You've got to prove to a WTO panel um, that the other country violated. Uh, you've got to prove usually to the appellate body on appeal the same thing. And then the appellate body has to you know, lay out exactly what the other country has to do to come into compliance, give them a chance to do it. And if they don't do it, then the appellate body has to approve uh, the specific uh, retaliation that you're going to impose. All that in a case like this would take about four years. Um, we've dealt with this problem for about 25 years, uh, even more than 25 years, but on the magnitude we're dealing with it now, about 25 years. Um, no other president would have just gone ahead and done this without going through the WTO process. It's, it's failing to go through the WTO process that seriously risks pushing everyone into a trade war and a, a seriously da dangerous downward spiral. Um, but what no one expected that happened yesterday is that when the White House published the memorandum the president signed, there was a provision in it where the president gave the U.S. trade representative the option of going through that several-year process. Right. No one saw that. It, it wasn't Trump's rhetoric never indicated he might do that. So if the USTR decides to do that, um, we're not going to see a trade war. Um, we're going to see consultations in Geneva between the countries and eventually litigation, maybe Probably, but w the whole thing's going to get tamped down for a few years until after Trump is no longer president. Uh, and even then, if we're authorized to put down sanctions, this has happened before with the United States, the EU, China, um, as long as they're legally authorized, China won't retaliate to them. But if Trump goes ahead and just imposes the sanctions now, Trump and his U.S. trade representative, or, or in the near future, without WTO approval, then we're looking at a real train wreck. You know, there's sort of three pieces on the table, it appears, from the, the Trump administration's uh, policy on this. One is to launch a WTO complaint about China's intellectual property policies, particularly these kind of coerced transfers, as they're describing, yep. and all that's part of the bigger package of, of theft and weak protection. Uh, and that, if that goes through the WTO process, I agree with Matt entirely, that's going to give us some time. It's going to uh, take the temperature down and, and channel it through a legal process that the Trump administration, and Trump in particular, has not shown a whole lot of patience for. But it wasn't that long ago he was talking about getting the U.S. out of the WTO. The other two pieces are um, essentially this uh, this tariff uh, uh, response, you know, which which proceeds somewhat in, in parallel. I mean, it's linked, but it's not completely the same thing um, because there is more on the table than, than just the IP sets of issues. And then there is uh, the question of restricting Chinese foreign investment in the United States. Now, that got a lot of play in the Trump announcement, but it really doesn't add that much. We already have a process for reviewing and blocking if the president so decides after right. interagency review processes through something called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. to stop uh, technology-sensitive uh, and national security, including national economic security-sensitive investments. Uh, so there really are, are a few different uh, pieces playing out here, and the question is, where do we go? The Chinese have played it in an interesting way. Uh, what they have uh, done is talked tough but left a door open, saying, you know, China has this set of retaliatory uh, measures ready to go. Now, the $3 billion is framed as a response to the initial Trump steel and aluminum tariffs and a warning that there may be a bunch more uh, Chinese trade sanctions, Chinese tariffs, if Trump goes forward with uh, sanctions, with tariffs uh, for Chinese goods. And those may be a lot larger and those may yeah. be targeted in areas that will hurt, including U.S. agricultural exports and maybe even targeting, as the EU threatened to do in, in response to Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs, targeting areas that are important to Trump's 
base. Uh, so we may see another around yet on that. China says, so we're prepared to fight a trade war and win it, but we really don't want to fight it. Let's right. negotiate and find a way out of this. Marshall? Um, as to number one, two, and three, um, uh, number three, uh, even the Chinese are taking care of. In other words, they've greatly reduced um, outward capital to the U.S. this yeah. year, for their own internal reasons, by the way. Um, number two uh, uh, is the one that's most on my mind. Um, I've heard this twice. Jacques, I know you've heard this once. You remember uh, Ash Carter yeah. talking about China at FPRI? Um, one of his comments was this. We treat China like a large France. Do I have that correct? Uh, <laughs> like a large France. Like a large France. Okay. Okay. And they went on to say um, it's, it's, it's really a statist economy. I think that was his term, statist. Uh, and then he went on to say our economists haven't really given us the tools to understand this. And therefore, we right. don't really know how to respond and um, I heard it the second time at the uh, Yale CEO Summit in New York. It was about three weeks later. So I'm pretty sure I've got it right. I, I really think we don't understand what we're dealing with. Because on the one hand, you look at China, the way most people look at China. Oh, my gosh, huge state participation in the economy. Yeah. And even when the state formally is not participating, they are. We have lots of data on this now. The data are old, so you're always looking backwards. But Which goes, it, goes back to the concerns of whether or not their GDP numbers are actually what they say they are, correct? Well, it's, they're, they're bandied about like baseball scores. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's, that's a whole other subject, yeah. and uh, it, it's a wonderful topic. But the GDP is not really the issue. I think the issue here is on the one hand, you've got a state-centered economy. Most people understand this. They may not understand the depth of it. But on the other hand, uh, and this was the surprising part, China's intensely capitalistic, intensely competitive, especially within firms. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and so the, the, the incentives to work really hard and to produce at low cost, albeit aided and abetted by a little borrowing of IP, um, are, are very, very strong. I mean, let's look at Huawei now. You know, Huawei's on our blacklist today, right? Yep. Virtually shut out of the U.S. market. Best Buy just dropped them the other right. day. Yep. Right, AT&T dropped them, Best Buy dropped them. But take a look. It's basically an ESOP. The employees own the shares. Yeah. Or so it's claimed. Some of them are phantom shares. And so the consequence is, hey, you know, people are going to sleep on their desks. Uh, if they feel they're going to make a lot more, more money. There, there are other versions of this kind of experimentation going within China. Uh, but, but I can assure you that a typical Chinese manager, if he looks at a typical, say, U.S. labor contract, scratches his head and say, that's socialistic. People working by the hour? No, yeah. no, no. I mean, we give people a base wage, but it's very low. Everything else is based on some measure of output or profitability. And we don't quite understand that as a driving force in China we're competing against. And are tariffs the right response? I'm not sure. Matt, your thoughts? Um, well, you know, there are a lot of – China is a complex issue. Part of the thinking under previous administrations um, is that uh, China has such an enormous government and coming into full compliance with WTO obligations requires such a – a large culture change, uh, corporate culture change within their government, that the truth was that they, they were probably moving forward as fast as they could anyway, that 
China was already on a slow transition to market orientation that was going to take 100 years, uh, and that the better way for us to bring them uh, into compliance with WTO obligations was simply to work with them on a very broad array of issues, about 100 issues simultaneously, and slowly, constantly engage and get slowly move the ball forward, which is what we've been doing for 10, 15 years with China. And not only has the ball moved forward on a very broad array of issues, but it's never moved backward with them. Um, though it moves forward very slowly, and it's frustrating. Um, but the feeling is that the only alternative was, this, was you know, going to the WTO, getting permission to retaliate, and retaliating. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like massive trade barriers by the United States against China. First of all, that's going to hurt the U.S. economy. Second of all, um, it's not clear China could respond to that the way we want them to, uh, even, if, even if they tried, not in the short run, because of this corporate culture problem they have inside their government. And third... Uh, it'll do great damage to the Chinese economy. And that's another big problem for the United States, a big mm. national security problem. I mean, at the end of the day, mm. with, a, with a centrally planned economy that large, there are a lot of weaknesses in their economy. And if their economy collapses, uh, that's a global security train wreck also. So the feeling was that this engagement uh, was a better move than confrontation. But if Trump's going to go the way of confrontation, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a mistake as long as he follows the WTO process. It's definitely a, a huge mistake if he doesn't. Jean? Yeah, I, mean, I think that, that obviously the more one stays within that process, the more it, it keeps things contained and, and uh, helps us avoid the risk of an escalation and a spiral. I mean, what we're talking about so far, you know, $60 billion from the U.S., $3 billion from China that might go up some from that. That's not a profoundly world-wrecking right. experience. The real concern is that it escalates uh, higher, and you've certainly got voices whispering in Trump's ear, Peter Navarro most uh, notably, uh, who seem to be ready to be the John Boltons of the economy. <laughs> really sort of say, let's, let's, uh, let's take out the tongs and start, uh, start pinching in the hammers and start swinging. Um, so how do you uh, fall short of that? How do you uh, stay short of that? Uh, and there is also this concern that, that Trump views the world in terms of bilateral trade deficits, mm-hmm. and the U.S. has a whopping bilateral trade deficit, over $300 billion, closing in on $400 billion with China. As we've talked about on the show many times before, and as anybody who watches this stuff knows, it's not that simple. Right. These are artifacts of a global supply chain, and if you see it in those bilateral terms, you're just swinging at the wrong thing, and you're going to, to make a mess of things. So anything that keeps it channeled through institutionalized processes is good. Anything that even does informal negotiations short of that is good. Um, but you know, it's the Trump administration, right? And so we don't know what this is going to look like. It could be that this is bluster that escalates. It could be it's bluster that backs down. It could be the Chinese will be, Chinese will be clever enough to give... Trump a few things that look like political victories, but don't address the underlying problems. I mean, all these things are in the realm of possibility. How much do you think that that these potential issues surrounding trade were discussed when President Xi came to the U.S. last year? Well, there certainly was a discussion of trade. And in fact, if you sort of follow the the TikTok on this, uh, you know, there were certain commitments made at Mar-a-Lago. There were a few of these cosmetic deals that didn't cost China very much that gave Trump an opportunity to claim a bit of a political victory. And then we were going to have some time to sort of negotiate and figure it out. And the U.S. is going to conduct its review. And ostensibly, this is the outcome of frustration with that process. Jean? Or, I'm sorry, uh, Marshall? Um, it's really interesting. Let's go back to TPP. Okay. Um, it, it, it strikes me that um, uh, that in, in in moving out of TPP, um, Trump gave away one of our best cards for dealing with China. Because what was TPP? It basically built an alliance yep. among uh, countries on the periphery of China, and I include in this Latin America, Latin American countries that were part of it. So we, 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 it, it, it's as if there's a version to, you know, all trade. 
Yeah. Right? We don't want deals with our allies. Okay. We want to set up barriers with China. Wait a second. Where is this going to take us strategically? I don't know. Um, but um, I'm, 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 I'm very concerned uh, that uh, we, uh, uh, we, we, we pulled out of TPP the way we did. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. For this to be effective, uh, there are a lot of things that I think pretty much anybody in, in this realm would say would have made sense as a setup. One is not to portray yourself and, and, and present yourself as being radically anti-trade deals. So right. opting out of the TPP was one problem, threatening to opt out of the WTO, being critical of NAFTA, being critical of the Korea-U.S. free trade agreements, sort of taking on all of that was not a great idea. And then instead of lining up countries similar to the U.S. that have similar complaints about China, the EU among them, yeah. uh, to say, let's all get together and, and present something of a united front to pressure China. Instead, Trump's been busy sort of sticking a thumb in the eye of all those folks and then comes in with this. It's, it's not really the best way to get maximum leverage against China. So, Matt, it's, it seems like that, that there could have been a, a path to really deal with this in a much different manner. Uh, but seemingly that path is not there right now. So I guess the question is how effective, assuming that we get the WTO part of this uh, into play, how effective will this be overall? Uh, great question. Well, first of all, um, Jacques was right. I think that if we do go forward with the WTO process, we will bring the other countries and the European Union in. They will be complainants alongside uh, the United States. So that, that'll work itself out. The question is, at the end of the day, four years from now, when we have authority for massive sanctions, um, <clears throat> will the Chinese be able to bring themselves into compliance to, to that degree of so many changes in such a short period of time? And if they don't, will we be doing more damage to ourselves with those than legal sanctions than not? But at least it won't cause a trade war. No one has ever retaliated against a legal retaliation, and I doubt that would occur um, I'd also like to say Marshall hit the nail on the head with the TPP. Um, the single greatest gift the United States has ever given China is Trump throwing away U.S. participation into the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it was also a massive gift to Russia. Um, not only did we have 12 countries on the Pacific, but every country on the Pacific was lining up to join the TPP after it was going to enter into force. Um, and in the end, it would have been only China, Russia, and North Korea would have been the only countries touching the Pacific that were not part of it. India and Pakistan might have joined, too. And there, there would, it would have been impossible, impossible for China to not join the TPP. And, you know, I managed the process by which Canada joined, and I managed the process by which Mexico joined the TPP. And I can tell you that we would have had just astounding leverage over China, leverage that we've never, ever had before when, when China got to the point where they were going to face that reality. It would have gone on for 40, 50, 60 years because it would have taken that long to go through the whole process and the same thing with Russia, and we just threw it away. Let me, uh, it's Marshall, let me um, kind of underscore that. I was in Israel a couple of weeks ago, and day before I left, uh, spoke with some of their China experts, and there's a generational divide. The older folks, um, more senior folks, I should say, um, were still very wary of China. Sure. Why is that? It's because they vote against Israel, in effect, in the United Nations. Okay. The younger folks, however, are looking at these entreaties from China. Israel, come be part of Belt and Road. You occupy this strategic position joining two continents. Um, we'll help you with this. We'll help you build a railroad from a lot on the Red Sea up to the Mediterranean. 
another path, China into Europe. And quite frankly, uh, the younger folks find this very attractive. Uh-huh. So until unless, uh, to follow on Matt's point, we bring our partners together, uh, we're going to wake up one morning and find that China has worked out trade relationships with the whole Eurasian continent, much of Africa, and we're sitting there isolated. Yeah, I think uh, they're both right. I mean, the TPP uh, bailout, you know, bailing out of the TPP was a terrible move, and now it's even worse that it's gone forward to some degree without us, everybody else going forward. Not the same deal, but still something that matters. This has given China a huge kind of soft power you know, propaganda opportunity. I mean, in addition to to saber-rattling about a possibly escalating trade war if the U.S. doesn't uh, back down or negotiate in some way, China's also been posturing saying, hey, you know, further proof that we, China, not you, the United States, are the guardians of economic globalization, of integration, and all that. Now, there are a whole lot of problems with that story, but that story is going increasingly unchallenged because the U.S. is no longer positioning itself as the leading power supporting the post-war liberalizing approach to the international economy. That is a huge and fundamental change. And I think Marshall's put his finger on the generational divide. You know, it's not as stark in every country. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to take too many years down the road of this uh, where people are going to say the old story of the U.S. is the liberal economic power and China's a state-planned protectionist power that's being dragged, kicking and screaming into the 20th or 21st century. That narrative is not going to hold. Well, you, you mentioned before uh, Peter Nav- and obviously uh, his role in this process makes you think that he would rather go the route of straight tariffs rather than going the route uh, of incorporating the WTO. Am I correct on that? And that seems to be where he is. I mean, it, there are uh, very few people who share his views on dealing with China, even people who agree with the analysis that we've got some severe problems in our economic relationship with China, some of which we've talked about here. The idea that this is the way to respond, to essentially uh, take a very hard line and a line that uh, that doesn't engage in much negotiation, and clearly there are frustrations with negotiations, that doesn't go through the WTO process. Yeah, that's, that appears to be his view. Yeah. Now, it's not the uniform view in the administration. I mean, there are the so-called globalists, and Cohn's been replaced with uh, Kudlow, and, you know, there's there are still divided views there. And, you know, Lighthizer is a, is a not terribly liberal guy on trade, but he's within the mainstream. Navarro is somewhat the outlier. But I think some of this is this is, seems to be one of the issue, few issues that Trump has genuine, deeply held instincts or views on. Uh, and so it's not just a question of having uh, people with problematic views whispering in his ears. I think it's a question of having people with more sensible views being able to steer him. Uh, that's a questionable undertaking under the best of circumstances. And I think on this issue, it's even tougher. Matt, your thoughts? Um, you know, I think it's a mistake. I agree with everything uh, we just heard, but I think it is a mistake to just, like, for example, draw a direct comparison between Lighthizer and Peter Navarro. Sure. One's a lawyer, one's an economist. They come from completely different places, and people sometimes lose track of that. You know, Peter Navarro is not agreed with by many other economists, but uh, in terms of the the the, um, the trade agreements themselves, I mean, Peter Navarro wouldn't recognize the WTO agreements if they fell out of the sky and landed on his head. And Ultimately, um, he doesn't even begin to um, uh, understand what they say, what they mean, or what the implications are of undermining them, let alone withdrawing from them. So, you know, it's, it's always a mistake to, to take the legal expertise out of the puzzle and talk just to economists uh, about trade. And when you have someone like Navarro, who's an outlier even as an economist, it becomes uh, very, very worrisome. Then you have, um, you know, Wilbur Ross and, and Robert Lighthizer, who are the other two remaining voices the president's hearing. Ross is not a lawyer either. Lighthizer is the only one who really 
uh, understands the, the international law we're dealing with and the implications uh, of, of undermining it. Great having you all with us today. Matt, thanks for joining us on the phone today. Thank you. Thank you. Jacques, Marshall, great seeing you both. Thank you for coming in. Great being here. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.